0: Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. A code of conduct
1: is your organization's character and culture written down. It articulates who you are, what you believe, and why you are in business. It also provides a reference for all stakeholders, a reference into what your organization values and how you live those values. But how do you design and implement a code that communicates effectively? What does good look like when it comes to a code of conduct? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Uner, Strategic Communications Director at LRN. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Jim Walton, Senior Ethics and Compliance Advisor at LRN and resident expert on codes of conduct. We're going to be talking about LRN's new Code of Conduct Excellence Report, which is a work in process, and it presents a set of best practices in code design and implementation. The report features insights from nearly 150 codes of conduct deployed by companies around the world. Jim is a real expert in this space and has played a vital role in developing LRN's point of view and our view that codes are foundational to developing and managing ethical corporate cultures. Jim, thanks for coming on the Principal Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Jen.
1: To start out, I, I, I want to validate that codes of conduct is something that people come to us on a regular basis for, right? Help in crafting and reimagining a code of conduct, and you're instrumental in that process. You're meeting with companies on a regular basis to reinvent, reimagine, and, and even start the process of developing a code of conduct. Tell us first, though, why are codes so important? What do they accomplish for companies? And why is a, a good code of conduct something that really matters?
2: Absolutely. As you said at the beginning, the code of conduct, and we this is something we feel very strongly about at LRN, that a code should be an organization's character and culture written down. So when you look at a code of conduct, you should get a sense of of who that company is, what's important to them, what are their values, and how they do business, how they go about interacting with their colleagues, with their customers, suppliers, and, and the world around them. And so the code of conduct is really the, the basic document that, that outlines that for, for all employees. So really helping to set the foundation for the ethical culture that everyone is trying to achieve. And you know we've, in the, we've seen it, an evolution of codes. In the past, they were very rules oriented, and now we're moving into much more of a principles and values-based code of conduct.
1: Which is such a good idea, I think, as someone in communications. As a a part of the process of creating the latest Code of Conduct Excellence Report, you undertook with a team an assessment of codes by top firms, as I understand it, on four major stock exchanges. Tell us about this.
2: So we wanted to expand our reach beyond the United States to cover some of the major markets where ethics and compliance programs should be fairly mature. And we expected this to yield a good cross-section of codes of conduct for the study. So we decided to pick the top 40 companies on the major stock exchanges in the following markets, the S&P in the US, the FTSE in the UK, the CAC in France, and the DAX in Germany. So out of a total of 160 companies, we were able to find publicly available codes of conduct for 147 of them.
1: That's pretty impressive just a quick sidebar codes of conduct are typically available publicly i mean if you if only a handful were not available would you say that most people are publishing publicly
2: Absolutely. And if you're publicly traded, you really should have your code of conduct online. And so that would be a question that either the listing authority or the the regulators who regulate securities in those jurisdictions might ask you about, why is your code of conduct not publicly available?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And so as you were looking at these codes of conduct, what, what exactly were you looking for in terms of assessment what dimensions matter the most in this process
2: we look at what we call the eight dimensions of code effectiveness and these are tone from the top purpose and values orientation applicability and administration speaking up risk topics knowledge reinforcement usability and look and feel they're all important in determining whether a code of conduct would be considered best in class or not So it's really the combination of these dimensions and how they work together that can make or break a code of conduct. If I had to pick the top three that are absolutely essential to get it right, I'd say purpose and values orientation, which is how closely and clearly the code is tied to the organization's primary purpose and shared values. Risk topics, which is how does the code describe the specific behavioral expectations that make the values real and bring them to life on a daily basis, and usability. It's critical for a code of conduct to be a useful resource that helps employees make ethical decisions, do the right thing, and find the information they're looking for when it comes to ethics and compliance. So
1: it kind of sounds like there might be a waiting system going on <laughs> as you assess these codes.
2: Absolutely. So our assessment framework was originally developed in in 2015 by former in-house ethics and compliance practitioners, drawing on research and experience on what makes an effective code. And over the past seven years, we've continuously updated the assessment criteria to reflect the latest research, regulatory guidance, and experience in helping organizations reinvent their codes of conduct. So within each dimension, there are a number of underlying criteria each will yield a score from one to five, with one being the worst and five being the best. And so as a result, we're able to produce an overall score for each code, as well as individual scores for each dimension.
1: So one of the things that I liked about this analysis and this scoring, you know, as I was getting familiar with the report is that you didn't just divide the results into you know even thirds, you really applied kind of an indicator of excellence on, on each of the dimensions. I think I saw that, you know, like a minimum, you know, there's obviously with this process, there's a minimum bar to hit to achieve a top rating. And so the range, the way that I saw the data play out and what I was looking at, it's the sneak peek, there were 17% that were ranked most effective and and the vast majority were, were effective in, you know, in the middle, I think it was like 50%. The remainder qualifying as less effective, which is how I would call you know, excellent, serviceable, and needs work. What were the common markers of the most effective codes? How did these things shake out?
2: Well, first of all, I, I love your characterization of excellent, serviceable, and needs work because that really describes it <laughs> <laughs> really well about how you know it wasn't just looking at the the top third, the middle third, and the and the and the bottom third. We wanted to be fair. We'd love every code to have a score of five on every dimension, or at least a four. Uh, across all dimensions, but that's just not realistic. So even with all of the progress that's been made with codes of conduct over the past five or 10 years within the ethics and compliance space, there's still a lot of work to do. And the bar just keeps being raised all the time. So we decided that codes with an overall score higher than 3.5 would be categorized as as more effective or, or excellent, as you've said. Codes that score between 2.5 and 3.5, we consider those to be in the middle range or effective. So it meets the basic needs. Nobody's going to get in trouble for, for missing something really important. And then finally, the, the codes that are below 2.5 are considered less effective and, and need work and, and sometimes need a lot of work. So the fact that exactly half of all the codes we evaluated fell in the middle. Or effective or serviceable category really indicates that many companies understand the need for a code and they also understand the basic standards and and expectations around codes. On the other hand, the fact that one-third of the codes fell into the lowest category and less than one-fifth were considered more effective in the top category, that suggests that there's significant room for improvement across the largest companies in France, Germany, the UK and the US.
1: So, you know, taking a, a a bit of a look at at some of these results, was there anything that jumped out at you in terms of, you know, where is everybody tending to do well, like on which dimension or which region is, you know, maybe out outperforming the others?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So the 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 category that really or the dimension that really scored the best um, overall was in um, tone from the top. And and so that's, that's really good. That just tells me that, uh, and that was about 50%. That tells me that people really get that. That's something that we've been hearing about for a long time now. And really having that strong support from the top is really essential. If you don't have that, then it's very difficult to create a strong culture of ethics and compliance. The other area, and, and I was pleased to see this, was in in terms of usability. So we just, just about half or just under half landed in the top category for usability. So this is really encouraging because I think it shows that there's a recognition that codes are supposed to be a useful resource and it's supposed to help guide employees in, in uh, you know, making ethical decisions, doing the right thing, and finding the information that they need. On the other hand, the the knowledge reinforcement was the dimension only 9% of the codes fell in the highest category for knowledge reinforcement. And this is a huge opportunity because what we really want to do with a code of conduct is enhance the understanding of the concepts that are outlined in the code. And we do this through the use of real-life scenarios as as well as links to related policies so people can get more detail on a specific topic area, linking it to training, videos, and, and other types of resources. So there's just a very big opportunity in that area, and it's a really critical area.
1: So it sounds like to improve knowledge reinforcement, it's it's really about providing additional resources that support the code
2: absolutely and making them really integrating them in the code so people don't have to go anywhere else so if you're going about your job you see something that doesn't look right you say oh is that harassment or is that fraud let me go take a look at the code you pull up the code you quickly find the section that talks about that topic area maybe you need more information you click on a link you get a video that talks more about the topic maybe additional training And then in the end, you're like, oh, I think we've got a problem. Let me click on the Speak Up link and and you can make a report or an inquiry about that topic area.
1: Yeah, so accessibility is actually a really important piece of this.
2: Absolutely. So making it available to people regardless of whether they have access to a laptop or a mobile phone or in cases where you have offline employees, you know, making the code available to them quickly in kiosks or or terminals or even giving people access to, to tablets and iPads and things like that.
1: Yeah, my phone. I, I always want these things like <laughs> the phone is the device that I walk around with all the time. It's my external brain. (laughs) Let's put the code there.
2: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: So I got to ask, since you were looking at publicly traded companies, right? (laughs) Publicly available codes, which codes, if I wanted to go see an example of something good, who should I be looking at? What are some of the companies that landed at the top of the heap?
2: Great question. So out uh, out of this group, I'd say the best codes that we saw came from General Motors, Imperial Brands and and 3M. So two from the S&P and one from the the FTSE. The first thing that if you pull these codes up and they're all available on the websites, the external websites of these companies, the first thing that makes these codes stand out is their is their visual appeal. So they really reflect each of these companies unique business brand heritage, culture, you really get a sense of of who they are and and in the case of 3M and general motors and even imperial brands you know you may be familiar with some of those brands and so the code would look very familiar right up front they also talk about how the code helps the organization fulfill its purpose so you know what's the reason why we get up in the morning and come to work how do we enhance people's lives make the world a better place and lining up with the core values of the company. And then finally they're very readable and usable. So they're easy to navigate, uh, move around in, find information, and the information is presented in a way that's that's understandable and digestible for the reader. They're really fantastic for examples.
1: That's great and I'm I'm sure we're going to be able to find those links and post them to the show notes for this podcast. So those again large publicly traded companies. Let's say though I'm an entrepreneur or better I'm a venture capitalist and I'm about to invest in a great kernel of a firm and you know help it scale up. You know I can see a big market opportunity for this new this new business venture. And let's just say I'm one of those VCs who truly understands the value of stakeholder capitalism and and you know I've read the LRN benchmark of ethical culture report that tells me you know, the most ethical companies outperform their peers by up to 40% across key business dimensions like employee loyalty and customer satisfaction and innovation and growth. At what point do I, as a leader in a, in a company like this, need to make sure my company is developing a, a strong code of conduct?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Jen. In working with dozens of companies to help them reinvent their codes of conduct over the years and and evaluating hundreds of codes along the way, we're finding that the size of the company does not always determine the maturity level of either their current code or their desire to have a state-of-the-art code. We've seen large companies with really underwhelming codes and smaller ones with with great ones. But I will say for the situation you described, the the place to, to really start is with the purpose and and values so really figure out what those are articulate them very clearly to everyone because that's going to go a long way towards building the culture of ethics and compliance that everyone desires once you've communicated those values and and people really understand what they are and and how how to apply them the next step would be to create a values-based ethical decision-making framework and, and add that to, let's say this is a code, but it's kind of the code is growing. So it may start out at a, at a few pages, you know, and then each iteration, you know, just gets a little bit longer. So the next thing is this framework to help people make those ethical decisions and make sure that it's that it's based on the values. At the same time, it's important to make sure that the code describes the speak up culture in which people are encouraged to speak up and ask questions and raise concerns. So this means making sure you've got all the right mechanisms in place to facilitate the speaking up and also importantly equipping managers with the tools that they need to listen and to deal effectively with the concerns raised by their teams. I think those are the places to start and then you can add more detail to each of those areas and you know bring in more of the risk topics as you move forward.
1: That makes sense. Start, you know, start with the big picture and then get more and more granular. I think that makes total sense. Jim, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today about great codes of conduct and the forthcoming report the Code of Conduct Excellence Report. I'm looking forward to that release. And I think it's—I think we're slated for June with that, if I'm not mistaken.
2: I think that's right.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be available for uh, free with registration at lrn.com. I also want to say as a part of this campaign, I'm looking forward to listening to you actually host an episode of the Principal Podcast with one of our client partners talking about code reinvention. So I think that's going to be actually another really great episode on this topic.
2: I'm looking forward to that as well.
1: Jim Walton, thank you again for joining me on this episode of The Principal Podcast. My name is Jen Uner, and I want to thank you all for listening to The Principal Podcast by LRN.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures, rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.